podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Evening all. Uh, it's Harinda here from the Anfield Index. I've not been on for a while, but that's because life has been very, very busy. However, however, um, lots of things have happened recently. And five or six years ago, we had a few Hillsborough podcasts and those podcasts were designed to inform those listening of what happened over the last 30 years. We know there's much information out there regarding the events that occurred on the 15th of April, 1989. And with the events of the last few weeks unfolding, a few of us decided to pick up a conversation that we last had, as I said, about five years ago. At that time, the aims were that our podcast would help many supporters, both in the UK and abroad, we're now in the history and context around this tragedy and where we sit in the present day. This time, it's much of the same. Much has been prevented from being stated over the last five years. It's time that's changed because the truth will never be silenced. Our guest today, so first, please let me introduce Richie Greaves. He's a survivor from Pen3 from that fateful day and a fierce campaigner who won't let anybody forget. Also, he's a personal hero of mine and we'll come into that in the um, pod because of that banner. And we'll talk about that banner later. We also have Jim Sharman, editor of the Hillsborough Football Disaster, Context and Consequences, which in itself was a vital tool in 2009 to aid direction, as well as education of many during the 20th anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster. It's proven to be a great source of knowledge for many learning about the events surrounding that fateful day in April 1989 and what followed. Finally, we have a man who probably needs a little introduction, but could probably fill a podcast all by himself. That's just on the intro. We have Professor Phil Scrayton, known by families and survivors as an authority on this subject. The respect we have for him cannot be easily stated. As a key member of the Hillsborough Independent Panel in 2012, the panel's report was unequivocal in proving that the fans were not to blame. He's also the co-author of two Hillsborough Project reports in 1990 and 1995, and also author of Hillsborough, The Truth, first published in 1999, and now it's in its fourth edition. Evening, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining me. Evening, Thank Thanks. Five years ago, we talked and touched upon the background, and we went quite deep into the background and the disaster and the lies, in, um, unfortunately, until April 2016. So just on that background alone, Phil, if I could come to yourself first and foremost, if you could just give everybody a background in regards to the time prior to Hillsborough, Hillsborough itself, and what's, I suppose, the journey that's been taken up until, but not including the coroner's inquest in 2016? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the long history takes us back to previous disasters and tragedies that had happened at Ibrox and at Main Road, and little was done to actually take note or to enact any kind of changes to Stadia in that time. Hillsborough, of course, had been used in 1966 as one of the World Cup stadiums. And at that time, its capacity, was, its standing capacity was massive, and particularly at the end of the ground where the disaster occurred, the Leppings Lane Terrace, which uh, terrace behind one goal, um, 10,100 people. Uh, little had changed. In fact, after the disaster, when one of the broken barriers was inspected, they found a rolled up newspaper that was over 30 years old stuffed down it. So 
it, it that showed the disdain with which fans were treated in terms of just basic safety precautions. And when the disaster happened, it was pretty obvious to me as somebody who was only the second semi-final I'd missed for Liverpool in the previous 10 years. And it was pretty obvious to me straight away that there was a real key element of deficiency that had contributed so to, to the disaster. And, and that was, I think, I would be right in saying in my own head at the time, I was looking for one particular failure. What I didn't realise at that time until a few days afterwards, and well, that night actually, when I was in Liverpool and I met fans coming back, I was uh, in, in the crown um, and I was watching it on television along with a lot of other people and fans were coming in and they were all telling the same story. And you realised it wasn't one particular cause. It was all of the failures coming together at once, the failure the police or to in any way regulate or calm the crowd outside into uh, some forms of, 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 of filing into the, the barriers, into the, sorry, the turnstiles. And of course, the turnstiles, as it proved to be, some of them were decrepit and 30, 40, 50 years old and jammed regularly. But I just want to say that to begin with, that as fans arrived, the build-up outside became really tense. And the reason it became tense was because we were trying to get half of the stadium's crowd through turnstiles at one end of the ground. And that area, no bigger than the school playground, had a wall on one side and a river on the other with a fence between the that side and the river. And so you were having three parts of the ground being fed by these turnstiles at that end. All this became very clear subsequently in terms of the, the danger that was being run. But there was no attempt to steward the crowd. There was no attempt by the police to regulate entry. And of course, more people arrived than we were going through the turnstiles. So inevitably in that very confined space, there was a buildup. And in a, in a nutshell, what happened next was that the police outside the ground panicked and they rang through to the control room, which was at that Lepping Lane end of the ground, uh, by the, just above the corner flag. And they spoke to the match commander, David Duckenfield. And they said to him, get this gate open, get an exit gate open. We have to relieve the crush. Now, that seemed to be a sensible way to relieve the crush, was to open the exit gate thereby allowing fans to go through the exit gate, relieving the crush at the back. But if that was to be done, once the gate was opened, what was needed was that the fans coming in, who were going in, let's remember, they were going into a ground with which they weren't familiar. Um, they needed to be directed, but no direction occurred. So on the inside of the ground, as their fans came through, there were no there were stewards there and there were police there, but they didn't direct the crowd. And right directly opposite, and you can still see it there today, right directly opposite this eg exit gate was a tunnel. And above the tunnel, it said standing. So everybody coming through thought, well, that's it. That's the, that, that is the entry to the terrace. What they didn't know was that it was a steep one in six gradient illegal tunnel 
down into the back of the two central pens. And those pens were already full. Now, a lot of people have said, well, you know, fans should have come back up the tunnel. Well, they couldn't because more people were coming down. It was just a crush in the tunnel and more people were coming down the tunnel. What should have happened was that the two gates at the mouth of the tunnel, which had been closed before in, when, when the similar uh, situation occurred and the central pens were full, those gates should have been closed and policed. And then the police outside them should have directed uh, the fans as they came into the side pens. And there's a very telling photograph that occurs after the teams are on the pitch, actually, where you can see this massive overpacking in these two central pens, which were only supposed to accommodate a thousand and a thousand one hundred people uh, accordingly. And those pens are absolutely packed tight. And to the sides of them, in the side pens, people are sitting reading the newspaper on the steps. Now, that's a perfect example of the problem that fans face. Once they were in there, they couldn't get out. They couldn't come out the front because of the big overhanging fences with two small gates in them, which were locked. They couldn't go sideways because the sides of the pens had high fences on top of walls. So they were trapped. It was as simple and as straightforward as that. The police officers who were actually on the perimeter track policing the two small gates at the front of those pens had those gates locked. And even though fans in both pens three and four were screaming for people to open the gates and let them out, they ignored those, they ignored those, the, the, those, the, those people begging for it. So people started to climb up into, at the back into the, and pulled up into the, um, the stand above, the Leppings Lane stand. Nobody could get back up the tunnel. People in the tunnel didn't know what was happening at the front. And basically, that's what happened until one of these old barriers that I mentioned um, collapsed relatively close to the front of Pen 3. That barrier went down, and of course, people went down over the barrier, and people went down on top of them. It was a pile of bodies approximately 18 deep. And, uh, and that was where the main concentration of death was. There were other, uh, other small pockets just around where similarly people were crushed and died, and a few people died in the adjacent pen. But that's where it happened primarily. And the entire, the entire disaster, which took approximately 20 minutes to happen from people coming in through gate C to the barrier collapsing um, in that time. And we remember that when people are crushed, crush asphyxia, which is compression of the rib cage around the lungs, you only have to be starved of oxygen for three minutes for it to do you very serious damage and perhaps kill you and another minute for definite death. So that situation um, meant that there was very little time to try and mount any kind of a rescue. And of course, the police had continued to keep the gate locked. People couldn't be dragged out over the top of the pens because pens were always death traps because they had spikes coming in above so you couldn't climb over them unless you were incredibly fit. There was no way back because you couldn't get back up the tunnel and there was no way sideways. And in a nutshell, 
that is exactly and precisely what happened. And it was completely avoidable. There is no question about that. It was avoidable in the long term had there been appropriate preparation and had people learned from Ibrox and had people learned from what had happened at Main Road in previous disasters, which were almost identical. Well, the Ibrox wasn't, but Manchester City, uh, the Manchester City game, which was a semi-final two uh, at Main Road, that was almost identical in terms of how people died. And I have to say, that over the 30 years that, pre that preceded Hillsborough from that disaster, no appropriate um, modifications had been made, except pens had been installed. And there was no way that those people coming through the turnstiles were being regulated into those pens. They were being distributed in Leppings Lane, but there was no official count on each pen. So nobody knew how many were in a pen. No many, nobody knew how to seal it. It was all done by visual appreciation. And the people up in the control box, I just want to make this clear for people who don't really know what I'm talking about. The control box was elevated high up above the Leppings Lane Terrace in one corner. It's approximately the distance that any of us could kick a football from where the disaster happened. They were looking down into where the disaster happened. They had monitors uh, that were outside the ground and inside the ground on television screens. So they could see the buildup outside. They could see the buildup in the pens. And they didn't think, not just the match commander, David Duckenfield, but Bernard Murray, who was very experienced and who was his assistant, none of them thought that when they opened the exit gate, gate C, to let people in, Nobody thought, oh my goodness, the central pens are closed, get that tunnel sealed off. All it would have needed was to have had the two gates pulled across it and three or four police officers standing there redirecting people. But they didn't take that decision. And that led directly to the crush going down the tunnel. And it was a perfect storm, a dreadful phrase to use, but that's exactly what it was. All those things came together on what was absolutely clearly, without any question, a foreseeable disaster. And there isn't even a, a doubt in my mind in saying that. It didn't matter whether it was Liverpool fans, Everton were playing Norwich on the same day at Villa Park. It could have been either of their sets of fans. If they'd have been at Hillsborough and if they'd been allocated that end of the, the ground. So it doesn't matter... And people say, oh, Liverpool have a lot of fans, therefore there's, that's nothing to do with the issue. The final thing I want to say is they did a headcount afterwards, which we can do now with uh, new technology. They did a headcount of all the people who were in the Leppings Lane Terrace at that moment, and it was under capacity. The whole terrace was under capacity. So this idea that a lot of people came in who didn't have tickets, who stormed inside, is absolutely nonsensical. For our research uh, on the Hillsborough Independent Panel, that's one of the first things we checked. So that debunked the myth that there was chronic overcrowding caused by ticketless fans. That debunked that myth completely. And another 
myth that was created, and we'll talk about this in a second, but another myth that was, was created was that the fans who died uh, and the fans around them had been heavily drinking. In actual fact, if you were to take the blood alcohol levels of all those who died, and sadly the police did this afterwards, if you were to take them and project them onto the crowd, it was a very small minority who'd had more than one or two pints. Now, one or two pints of beer going to a football match is complete moderation. You know, if we think about Wimbledon or we think about test cricket at Lords or any other big event, we go out to the theatre, you'd have one or two pints. The other issue that was, that, 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 so the, the myth of drunkenness was, was one of the other issues. And even last week, one of the barristers who had been representing the police interest in the most recent and final trial, he, he made the point afterwards um, that there was a riot outside. There was nothing like a riot. What there was was a crush. And there is a major difference between, as we all know, going into nightclubs or wherever, um, the, a, a crush where the throughput is slower than the arrival that is always going to lead to a crush, but there was no riot. The other issue that, 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 that he, he, he raised was that those who died, he said, were completely innocent because they come in early and none of them had been drinking. Well, I had to write to him to inform him that a third of those who died came in through gate C. And very few, of course, he was right to say none had been drinking, or very few, but that wasn't the point. The point he was making was that these people had arrived, that those, the 96 who died, he's saying, had arrived early and were crushed by people arriving late. That was a myth. Eddie Spirit, for example, had stood back with Adam when he saw the crush at the turnstiles, and when Gate C was opened, he went through Gate C thinking this was the safe option. They both lost consciousness and Adam died. So, you know, those myths are still peddled today. And that's one of the things that is so difficult for us to keep our cool about is that the myths that were promulgated, and we'll come to this in a second, the myths that were promulgated in those early days. And Richie will talk a little bit about the impact of those myths on survivors because virtually they were being blamed. You know, that that issue, um, that those myths being exposed has been part of the program, part of the, part of the research. And those myths were all exposed in the late 1990s and even earlier. And yet, only last week, they were promulgated again. Coming to the myths and lies, because I think that's a really good point to sort of like bring you in, Richie. They almost started straight away, right? So you think about the White Press Agency and everything that was being pushed through them. You think about the, um, the headlines that were printed by he who should not be named and a publication that doesn't bear talking about me, to be honest. But you told I me mean, as your banner, I love your banner, which says, you know, we told you they lied. Yeah. Yeah. So over to you, Richard. In your own words, in regards to like the period of lies, the, the, the farcical a Taylor report and and it, you know the likes of the people that were involved in that you know you can come to yourself on that period 
Yeah, well, don't forget the lives started at 20 past three while people were still, you know, fighting for their lives in the terrace. Uh, Duckenfield was was passing on uh, lies about Liverpool supporters breaking into the ground um, to the FA, which uh, got aired on um, Five Live. So, I mean, there's, a, there's an old saying, you know, a lie travels around the world while um, the truth's still trying to get its boots on. Well, pe- people were still being carried out of pen, pens three and four. People were getting CPR performed on the chest. Fans were mounting a rescue effort. And there was Duckenfield already co- trying to cover his tracks. Um, but as regards the, the, the lies that appeared um, four days later on Wednesday the 19th, um, I've always described that as an absolute hammer blow to us, you know, to 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 go through what we went through in them central pens that day and to come out the other side, you know, to witness and hear what we heard and, you know, carry people down the pitch and to, to get home, that was, it was traumatic. But then, you know, to, I got a phone call on, on that Wednesday and it was a friend of mine and he said, have you seen what's in the newspapers today? And I said, no, I haven't seen anything. And he said, the same, we robbed from the dead. Uh, we were all drunk, ticketless. And I, I couldn't speak. I just had to put the phone down. That, that was, that was, and, and from then on, everything changed. I think in, in, the, in the immediate few days afterwards, even the Sheffield um, Star on the Sunday, they had numerous um, journalists at the game um, covering it in all different capacities. And they, they, they in general, uh, done a pretty accurate, you know, summing up of the game. Um, but and and initially as well, there was a, a great deal of sympathy. You know, obviously it was all over the telly, and people were very very sympathetic. But from that Wednesday, the nineteenth of April, the minute the newspapers dropped on people's doorsteps, everything changed. We became the accused, um, and that was very very difficult to take from from then on in. You know, and, and for the next. 32 years after that, uh, well, not quite until the HIP panel uh, published its report, really, uh, and that was a huge weight off our shoulders. But until then, we, we, we were the accused, and the whole world believed those lies. I mean, speaking of the HIP report, this is probably a, a very good point to, to bring yourself in, Jim, because before that, there was the documentation that you helped produce for 2009, and to get the voice out there in respect to pushing further on the likes of Andy Burnham and co in regards to another inquiry and having a structure of an independent panel to look at this. Uh, Herinda, what's the question? Um, it's for yourself in regards to the, uh, the understanding of HFD, okay. how it came about, and also it, the work that it led to in respect um, to the HIP. Well, uh, the... The book, uh, Context and Consequences, was the result of um, a massive backlash uh, in 2007 uh, following comments um, by uh, Calvin McKenzie at a lawyer's dinner um, when he said that uh, he knew the truth at the time and he didn't regret publishing, uh, which was followed by a massive mosaic on the cop on the uh, third round of the FA Cup against Arsenal on, I think, 6th January, I think it was. Um, when for six minutes there was a massive 
vocal reaction to that. And then the um, supporters' forums boards lit up the next day. And, and and I was in Sweden, not not knowing what was going on, watching the match with Swedish commentary and the Swedish commentators not understanding what was happening. I was like, the truth, the truth, what's happened now? So, you know, I, I, I found Red and White Cop and discovered that there was such a thing as a, 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 a forum to express your views on. And then for the next six to 12 months or so, I, I, I got involved in a small group of people who decided to take on the lies that were still being peddled in um, things like a Reuters news agency reports, like uh, linking uh, Hillsborough to Heisel and hooliganism, or um, ridiculous storylines about hooliganism in EastEnders, where a, where a West Ham fan accuses a Mancunian of causing... Um, uh, causing Hillsborough, uh, it's just it was insane. So we we, we battled that, and then um, Nicola McMillan um, posted this brilliant, eviscerating. Um, I can't call it a rant because it wasn't hugely emotionally charged. It was so cool and so kind of, so kind of. Let's take all the emotion out of this and just say, here's a list of facts. Read that, and the little group of us who have been doing all this background work. Um, coordinating um, email campaigns against lies, looked at that and, and said, that's what we're looking for. Let's do that. And the idea was to produce something on, that could be folded up literally on a piece of A4 and stuck in the back pocket. And any time you come across an idiot who says, late, drunk, aggressive, and ticketless, you just pull that piece of paper out and say, read that, shut up. And um, then the the moderating team of, of, of Raw picked up on that and said, we, we could do something big with this. We, we've got the uh, 20th anniversary coming up next year. Why, why don't we turn this into a book? And then the whole thing was, the whole thing just snowballed and it got crowdsourced and it was picked up by LiverpoolFC.tv and it was, it was, it was, um, it was promoted on all, all media channels and everything. And the idea really was to produce an educational resource that was free from emotion, that was free from conjecture that had every single sentence in it expressing a fact could be referenced to a source, which is in the public domain. And the reason we felt that was important is because we learned something about, um, we learned something actually from the, um, the Kennedy conspiracy, which says that, um, that if, if, if you spread enough lies, you hide the truth. But the truth has always been out there. And I want to, I want to, I remember going on Radio City and um, uh, Jimmy Corkill from uh, Brookside, I can't remember his real name now, <laughs> but I just remember sitting there in the studio saying, I'm being interviewed by Jimmy Corkill. He says, he, opened, he opens up the, um, the interview by saying, so tell me, Jim, what's new in this book? And I just said straight away, absolutely nothing. And then I thought, what have I just said? But that's the point. There was nothing new in it. It was just taking all the noise away and leaving just the facts. And the campaign, if you like, behind that was to say, well, if we can produce a booklet with reference facts and put it in the hands of every media outlet, every politician, every skeptic, every doubter, every person who spreads the lies and everybody who doesn't understand the truth, maybe, just maybe this year will make a difference. And what a difference it did make. Because I look at myself as somebody who had made a difference too. My own history with Hillsborough is that I'm born and bred in West London, right? Like mm. my, my vision of getting to Liverpool was often crushed by my mum and dad saying, you're not going anywhere, son, sit down. Um, and that's the way it was until I was about 20-something. And when Hillsborough happened, I was in India. 
Actually, I was in Delhi airport waiting to come back. And I remember my dad thrusting a newspaper saying, this is what's happened with your football teammate. I'm like going, you what? And he showed me the paper of in India on the 16th because we were flying back that day. Um, we got back on the 16th. And I remember just reading the paper and I like, fans dying and you're like well okay but this is a football match that's not really meant to happen i knew the bradford disaster had happened because obviously they'd been as was the rage those days they'd been um there was always like a, a musical tribute of sorts you know a charity record that would come out whenever there was a disaster there had been you know there was let it be there was you know um we are the world it was you know, do they know it's christmas time all that kind of thing. there was always some sort of song that came out and I remember there was a song for the Bradford disaster. That's the reason why I remember it, because it was played at school. Uh, but then this happened. And I remember coming back, flying back home and, and being kind of in a bit of a shell shock because it was the Easter holidays. You had no one at school to talk about with it. And the, there was nothing you could really think or feel as a 12-year-old. But years later, as you started learning things, and as I learned now in regards to of lies lies come out first truth comes out much much later but when the truth comes out it's got a battle like a massive one um i, I felt hollow and stupid like I, i've supposed i've spoken to many fans about this as well where y- you feel a bit meekish and silly because you wish you knew things earlier but then i always used to say to myself that once you do know you know what do you do with it mm. yeah jim sorry you want to come back in yeah, I mean, that's that's it's very interesting what you're saying there about uh, like knowing the truth. I mean, even back, even back then in 2007, 2008, you're thinking you know what happened, and you you got like you got books that have been published, and you've got um, inquests that have already happened, and you think you know the truth. And the deeper the deeper you dig, the more noise you push away, the more obvious the truth becomes. And it was just smacking us in the face, going, "This happened, not that. This happened," and then it got worse. And then it got worse. And then you mentioned April 16th and you're in Delhi airport reading a newspaper. Something else was happening on April 16th that made us so mad that eventually we had to take control and redirect the narrative. What happened on April 16th was Margaret Thatcher, Douglas Hurd and Bernard Ingham were being escorted around the ground by stadium officials and other policemen saying, this is what happened. Tell the world this happened. Actually, you tell, you, why don't you tell them this bit and we'll tell them that bit. And... Then Bernard Ingham proudly says to the, uh, to, 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 to the waiting press, I know what I learned on the spot, that a tanked up mob of 500 were hell bent on getting in. Well, actually, actually, he, he didn't say that to the press. What, 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 what they said to the press was very little. That was written in a memo that I have here in my possession. When I pulled them over the issue, along with some of the fans in the aftermath, and Bernard Ingham wrote and used that paragraph. So it's, they said very little to the press, but one of the things that's so indicative in that photograph you're talking, you're talking about, Jim, is the they're standing exactly where the disaster happened and they're in a huddle and they're all there and Bernard Ingham is there listening in. And that's when he says, I know what I learned on the spot. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to go back a, a, a little bit to, to the desperation I felt 
um, by the time you were writing. I remember you writing to me and asking me to read through the manuscript and, you know, well, basically to see if there are any inaccuracies or whatever. And I remember initially feeling quite reluctant to do it, not because it was you, because I didn't know you or because of what you were trying to do, because I could see what you were trying to do was really important. But by that time, I'd become really exhausted and really in a, a pretty bad way about uh, getting the story out to the media. If you have to, if I go back to the immediate aftermath, that first report we wrote, which was a critique, and a lot of people have taken me to task for this, was a critique of Taylor. And it stated that Taylor, the Taylor report was too quick. The interim report was too quick. But he didn't look at any of the context. He didn't look at any of the key issues surrounding how the disaster occurred. He did criticize the police for them being less than truthful, as he put it. But that's all he did. And he did obviously find that the main cause of the disaster was overcrowding, but the main reason was mismanagement of the crowd. Now, everybody saw him as a hero for that. But afterwards, he's now quoted as saying, did I go too far? And we know that that's what he was thinking, because when he came to do his second report, the final report, Hillsborough doesn't get a mention. He talks about football's ills. He talks about hooliganism and all the rest of it. So by the time his final report came out, his interim report got buried. So everybody in Liverpool and everybody associated with the disaster understand Taylor as somebody who made a major contribution initially. But he failed in his second report. And that's why we decided having written the first report that we wrote, which is 150, 160 um, pages. And let's remember what's in that report that we wrote a year afterwards, our interviews with the families and survivors in the immediate aftermath, how they were treated at the stadium when they came to actually identify the dead. And I call that a tragedy out of a disaster because they were driving over to look for their loved ones, finding their loved ones either in hospital or in the gymnasium dead in body bags and identifying them. And then they were treated as criminals. And they were asked to say whether their sons and daughters or their husbands or wives, few wives, whether they had a criminal record whether they'd ever been arrested at a football match before. They were put through hell. And the first report in 1991 exposed all of that. And then the second report, which we decided we'd have to write, was 1995. That's 400 pages long. It's now forgotten. There are very few copies of it available. But that report completely took apart the first inquest and we were under a lot of threat at that time. Uh, I was, I, I've never forgotten the university that I worked in sending me a memo as that we had in those days saying that if Hillsborough is getting in the way of your academic work, 
We suggest you cease it immediately. At the same time as that happened, the Liverpool Daily Post, of all newspapers, made an attack on our team, stating, and I have it framed upstairs, why do we need a group of academics to tell us what happened at Hillsborough? And so we, I, we were getting it from both sides. We knew we weren't friends of the police, obviously. And it was the fact that after that, all the cases failed. It was the fact that, and I spent a lot of time with Jimmy McGovern's team. In fact, Katie Jones, um, who since died, is one of my, became one of my close friends. And getting Jimmy McGovern's film out was really important and really significant in the late 90s. And it was then that I decided to write Hillsborough the Truth. And the, the only reason I'm going through this is because when I wrote Hillsborough the Truth, I took three months off to just write it. And when it came out and, and the publishers were absolutely beside themselves thinking we were going to get sued. And of course, that was the acid test of it being the truth was the fact that nobody did sue us. And in the middle of all of that, I have to say that Norman Betterson had been appointed chief constable, who'd been a gopher for the South Yorkshire police. He'd been appointed as chief constable of Merseyside, and it was all hell about that. He rang me on an ex-directory phone to ask me if his name was in the book, which at that point it wasn't. He got a walk-on part, more than a walk-on part, in the second edition. But when the book came out, and I, I just want to, to say this, because when the book came out, and it was serialized in the Sunday Mirror, I thought, this is it. This is it now. This has opened that door. All the legal processes have failed, but it's opened the door. And I'd, by that time, I'd found the statements. I'd gone through them all in the House of Lords reading room, and I saw that they'd all been reviewed and altered. And that was a story in itself. But... I took a big risk in terms of, of revealing all that chapter and verse. And they were dreadful. The, the modifications of the statements were dreadful. So when it was serialized in the Sunday Mirror and there were banner headlines which said how the truth was altered, I just thought, this is it. This is the breakthrough. It was a Labour government. Jack Straw had committed to Hillsborough, blah, blah, and nothing happened. So by the time you get to the mid-2000s, and I've moved to Northern Ireland, still working with the families, still attending meetings, still trying to advise on what should be the next stage. By that time when your book came out, it, was, it, was a, it became a breath of fresh air. Initially, I was like, Why, what, what, we already, we've already published loads of stuff. Nobody's listening to us. But I think that the trick was that you made, you, you made a book that was to the point, it was concise, it was on the money, it was direct. Um, it wasn't 400 pages long that people have to plow through. And I think that, that that kept the momentum. And of course, when we get to the end of that period, um, 20-year anniversary coming up. That was when I, we met with Andy Burnham and it was me that wrote the terms of reference for the Hillsborough Independent Panel. 
I can now say that. And uh, and that and the families took that forward, and it went on from there. And then there was a massive battle just to get me onto the panel, because there was a lot of resistance against me being on the panel, and I I can't think why. I was just about to say, you know, I can't imagine why, Phil. Um, Richie, coming to yourself now, I mean, you've got the Taylor report. I mean, the first mini report was what, 31 days, 41 days, something like that, straight after the disaster. It was a bit of a whitewash. Then you have the coroner's inquest and Stephen Popper and everything else that's involved with him. And we go through that, I think, in the previous podcasts. Uh, You then have the Stuart Smith inquiry, which is another shitty moment in regards to things that come out, which are... You know, the familiar outcome of nothing to even see here, even though new evidence is brought to light. You then have a formidable lady who I never got to know properly, but I have a friend who did. So I have a friend called Rupin Ganatra who knew all about Anne Williams even before I, you know, even before I did. And obviously Jim and things through walking and things through yourself. We have the Anne Williams campaign. Um, and then almost it's like as if a, a touch paper is lit. The blue touch paper is lit with hit, coming out in 2012 and everything that comes out with that. I mean, everything that happens after that, the subsequently Dominic, the, the, the then Attorney General Dominic Grieve quashing the old coroner's inquests and um, ordering a new one. Uh, how did this make you feel, Richie? I mean, cause obviously you, from someone who's been at the lion face of it all, much more than myself, much more than many people that I know, I'd, I'd love to know what you think. Cause last time we got to speak to Adrian about this, but I, I don't think I've ever been able to ask you. Well, Phil made me, uh, when Phil was speaking then about people identifying their loved ones, you know, in, on, on, you know, on the night of the disaster and the, the day after, it reminded me of something as well. You know, from a survivor's angle, um, the survivors had their blood alcohol levels taken as they lay unconscious in their hospital beds, you know. So, the, the, you know, the, the, the thing against survivors had started from very early on as well, and that was without the permission of their families. You know, imagine going to visit you know your loved one in hospital who's you know almost been crushed to death the the day before to find out that they've had the blood alcohol level taken Um, and then what we as survivors had to do then uh, was complete a questionnaire over the phone uh, which was very which was lent towards alcohol Um, this was um, West Midlands Police and so one of the questions I remember on, on the questionnaire was, did you see anything which may have led to the deaths? And I put, I saw police officers pushing people back into Pen 3. Well, when I eventually saw a copy, they came out to, get, they came out to take a statement two weeks later. It was on the 1st of May. And when I eventually got hold of a copy of that, it, it didn't have anything in my statement about seeing people being pushed back into Pen 3. Yeah. There was five key elements to my statement that they'd eradicated. Um, I compared what it was like outside the ground in 1988 to 89. Um, obviously, the difference there was the police had, there was 15% less police in 1989 than there was in 1988. Um, so there was no cordons outside the ground. Um, they'd closed access to the North Stand from the Peniston Road, which meant hundreds, if not thousands more, who were going in the North Stand had to come in through the bottleneck in Leppins Lane. Yeah. Um, and I think there'd been 13 turnstiles available for the Leppins Lane Terrace in 88, but there was only seven yeah. in 89. 
Um, so what that meant was it, it, there had to be a steady stream of people from one o'clock onwards if you had any chance whatsoever of getting all those people into the ground. So they, they knew well in advance that there was a problem and that problem was just ignored. But then once I, once I gave my statement to uh, the West Midlands Police, two officers came out and then they said, did you have a drink on the coach? And I said, uh, no, you couldn't. It was a dry coach. Um, did anyone else have a drink on the coach? And so, well, no, they couldn't. It was a dry coach. Did you stop for a drink on the way to the ground? Uh, we were saying, well, we went into a service station and like people went to the toilet and come back and had a cup of coffee. Or um, did, did, when you got there, did you go for a drink? And I said, well, we wanted to. But two police officers told us that every pub within a mile of the ground was shut. Did you see anyone else having a drink? And it, it was like it was just, a, you know, it was just bombarding you. You know, alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. You know, trying to f- and that, and this is West Midlands Police who were trying to supposedly conduct an independent independent investigation. Um. So, so following that, I I gave evidence at, at the first inquest in Sheffield in nineteen ninety one. And that was the most awful experience of my life. Um, I drove up there on my own. I sat outside the court on my own. Um, when I eventually went in, um, Pop- Stephen Popper was the coroner. I think Stanley Beachy, who was um, suspended and on non-operational duties because of um, the West Midlands Police Serious Crime Squad um, corruption scandal. Uh, I think he was sitting there on, on Popper's knee and, uh, and and also Mervyn Jones, who was the deputy chief constable of West Midlands, was there as well. Yeah. They're well, all, uh, I was asked to I was asked to give me name and address, and then they, they started taking the Mickey out of me. The my accent. Uh, so I had like there were seven barristers representing South Yorkshire Police and uh, West Midlands Police, Sheffield Wednesday, the FA, that type of thing, and we had one barrister representing the families. And then they started saying to me, um, were you pushing outside the ground? And I said, well, no. I said, I joined the back of a, of a, a, a big throng of people in a bottleneck. And they said, well, you, you must have been anxious to get in. You must have been pushing forward. And I said, well, no. I said, as people went through the turnstile, you kind of, the whole crowd just gradually edged forward. Did you have your hands on the back of, pe- on the back of people? And I said, well, in, in crowds in them days, you were used to standing up and what you used to rest your uh, forearms on the back of people. And it was basically to protect yourself as well because if everyone pushed forward, you weren't going to headbutt the back of their head. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the way it was. You weren't pushing them forward. You were just kind of leaning on the, on the back of them. And they went on and on and on trying to get me to say I was pushing. And in the end, one of the families from the, from the gallery shouted out, how many times has this lad got to answer the same question? Um, so that was that was farcical, the first inquest, and that that really traumatised me. Uh, I come away from there, and basically after that, for a long, long time, if I heard the, the word Hillsborough, if I walked into a room and it was on the radio or there was something about it on the telly, I'd just go cold. I, and, or if somebody said to me, oh, were, you, were you there? Within seconds, they'd realised they couldn't carry on the conversation because I'd got a lump in my throat. You know, I'd have tears streaming down my face. I'd, I'd, I'd get goosebumps on me. I'd, I'd, just the mention of Hillsborough absolutely just shut me down. And that that 
that went on for a long, long time there. Uh, and you ever get the feeling that there's this sentiment of whereby how many times are you going to answer the questions that we still seem to be answering questions now? Yeah. That, years on, it's, it's really painful. I mean, just listening to you, I remember last time when Adrian was speaking and um, Phil from things that you've said, something that just seems to always resonate with me is that no matter how many times it's told, no matter how many ways it's said, people always want to think or believe something else. There, there seems to be a ma- and almost when you think you've got over the hill and you've, yeah, you've made people understand what's actually happened and the truth is, is definitely out there and it's been underlined by many verdicts since in the last four or five years in regards to the truth and it being out there and things that also have come out in the last couple of weeks and the truth being out there, that still all it takes is one drop of a lie, a bit of the myth to come back out again in regards to drunken fans or fan behavior, even though these things were exonerated, you know, like completely exonerated, but they, they just dropped to change the mood. We've, we've spoken a lot about that recently, Herinda, um, because of, you know, what, what's happened with the collapse trial and everything. Um, and what I'd say was, if, if, if you have some kind of grief or trauma in your life, um, they say time's a healer. And I, and I think it is. I mean, I, I lost my mum when she was 54. And you do kind of, it does get easier as the years go on. But with Hillsborough, you're constantly being reminded of it. You know, there's always something like the, the Johnson article, um, you know, in the um, Spectator, and then the Kelvin McKenzie gets up in front of the businessman in Newcastle, and the, the every, you know, every time you might go and you might go a week or a month or something, and it hasn't really hit you, and then next minute it's all over the press again. People are slaughtering you on Twitter, Facebook. And and as well, we've constantly got away supporters coming to Anfield, singing, you know, the sun was right and your murderers. And so it, it, Hillsborough is something that just will not leave you, you know what I mean? And you've got to have that fierce determination as well to, to carry on and, 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 and ride through that because we have to keep telling the truth about what happened. We have to keep telling the truth for the people that, that never came back. Um and we have to keep telling the truth for survivors who I mean, have taken their own lives and, and, and been unable to live with the lies, you know. Completely. I mean, one thing that I think underpins the Hillsborough Justice Campaign um, from a family's perspective and survivors is stamina. So, Jim, I wanted to come to yourself on this because the, the aspect of stamina isn't for everybody. It isn't. I've seen it in my own life, you know, in regards to things that have happened with the Sikh community in the, um, throughout the last century, really, you know, culminating in the, in the mid eighties and also yeah. 84 and also persecution post then from 84 mm-hmm. into 95, 96, 97, and even to modern day times, you know, in regards to how things are in Punjab now, but this is not that pod. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's, there's dramatic parallels in respect to people who know how to have stamina to be able to just carry on. You know, Jim, I, just, I know that you had other things that you wanted to say on, on stuff, but just to get your thoughts for a few minutes on, on stamina alone, you know, because it takes something from people to be able to carry on. Okay. Uh, I'll draw a little parallel then, because I, I, I didn't actually want to do a very quick timeline about something, but um, I'll, I'll be able to combine the two here. Um, you mentioned stamina, 
then I think of athletics and I used to do cross country when I was a teenager and then I burned out in one year and then all I could do was sprints. The lies were a sprint. Within the space of four days, you had uh, Graham Kelly being told by the police control room that the fans had stormed the gate. Then you had Bernard Ingham being told the next day on the terraces, and I misquoted Phil, thank you for correcting me. It was actually Paul Middup who said, 500 hell-bent on getting in on ITV News three days later. And then four days later, we've got the Sun newspaper. So the lies had a sprint. The truth runs a marathon. And in fact, it runs ultra marathons. And it does take stamina to keep the truth going. But here's the thing. You can sprint for 10 seconds, 11 seconds, 12 seconds. 11 was my personal best, but 11 seconds, you can do a 100-meter sprint but you can't do 11 seconds per 100 meters for 400 meters. You need a relay to do that. And this is the thing. The baton has been passed on from one group to another group to another group to another group over time. And when Phil was feeling tired in 2008 and gave us our support, then we ran with the baton for a while. And then Hip took the baton. And then in 2016, we had the inquest and, other, and, and the families again could take the baton again because they, they had been recharged and re-enthused and reinvigorated by hope and belief. And some of us foolishly trusted the system, but that's a different conversation which we'll have soon. But all through this time, the truth ran a marathon. And it's the tortoise and hare story. So every single time the lies come out, they will run out of breath very quickly because we have more of it. We have more breath because there's more of us to tell the truth. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and more so. I mean, to bring us more towards where we are heading in regards to the, the now, here and now, I think it'd be very, very prudent to actually talk about 2016 because it culminates in many, many things from the touch paper that's lit by HIP and then what comes out. The subsequent, the subsequent coroner's inquest is, is a watershed moment. You know, it's the watershed moment we were not allowed to talk about in 2016. We could talk up to it, and we utilised a very small window of opportunity to release what we wanted to feel. So it released the, the sentiments that we had between the verdict coming out and everyone being muted again for what then turned out to be five years. Um, the verdict's come out. You know, the, let's be clear here, the, the verdict in April 2016 had 14 questions to answer. Yeah, the inquest themselves concluded quite nicely with 96 football fans, we already knew this, who died as a result of a crush in the disaster, were unlawfully killed. And also, almost like what, nearly 27 years on from the day itself, the behaviour of Liverpool fans was exonerated. The fans were unequivocally not to blame, similar to the HIP report in respect to what came out. Um, I won't go through all of the 14 questions themselves, but part of them, part of them that I think is very, very pertinent for, for people to understand and, and, and know in regards to things around the basic facts of the disaster, you know, the policing and match situation at 10 times, which Phil, you've already alluded to, but the aspects of unlawful killing, but behavior of the supporters. The question that was posed quite unequivocally was, was there any behaviour on the part of the football supporters which caused or contributed or contributed 
to the dangerous situation at the Leppings Lane turnstiles? The jury's answer was no. No, there wasn't. So Phil, it would be great to get your thoughts about the coroner's inquest in 2016. And then sort of the timeline, I mean, I can go through the time, it's quite depressing almost after that, because that seems a pen, you know, that's a high. I remember Jim, yourself, how you were on that day. Um, other people that we know from the red and white cop in respect to what they'd gone through and what they'd been through and what they'd worked towards, you know, and seeing that and also Richie, things from yourself, you know, because that, if I think about the last five to 10 years, that was the high before the lows, but before some serious lows as well. Well, when, when the Hillsborough Independent Panel Report was published, and just put that into some context, it wasn't plain sailing. I'm quite prepared to say this now, it wasn't plain sailing. I don't think everybody was on board. And uh, there was always an attempt for the panel to be managed. And I knew that from the outset. Unfortunately, with Katie Jones, Bill Kirkup, Raju Bat on the panel, um, we were we had quite a strong um, we we had quite a strong presence. I mean, let let's be clear: there was an attempt to have the research done for the Hillsborough Independent Panel put out to another university, and I said. You mean I'm going to manage the research and it could be in Bristol or it could be anywhere? I said, no, that's going to be done with me. There'll be my researchers in my department. And there were those sort of battles all the way through. And in actual fact, the chapter in the uh, report on the media was only written in the two months before the report came out because I couldn't get access to those documents from White's news agency, which I finally got. But, but the actual report itself, um, I had doubts right up till the last minute, 153 findings. I'm quite prepared to say that there were attempts to get me to moderate those findings. And those findings were written on my kitchen table. And, you know, when the report came out, uh, and I'll never forget that day, it's most, one of the most important days of my life in the... In, in, in the cathedral, there were two things. The first one was that none of that was ever recorded. I've still got my overhead presentation that I gave, and I insisted that I would give it to the families. And Bill Kirkup talked about, um, talked about two slides on, on, on the medical evidence. And when I finished that, it took over an hour to do the report, to, to, to go through the whole um, presentation. We then went to speak to the survivors, and Richie knows this, and we went into the survivors, and, and I felt that they had no idea what had just gone on with the bereaved families. And I went into the room, and I think they feared the worst. I think they thought they were going to be let down again. And there wasn't um, unanimous popularity for me either in that moment. So I gave the findings and again the 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 outpouring was immense immediately and then we all went down to St George's Hall and we know what happened next in terms of 
30,000 people turning up and, 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 and all the rest of it. But I just want to go to one moment. I was standing at the back of the crypt in the cathedral, watching the giant television screen, and on comes David Cameron from a packed uh, House of Commons and issues a double apology immediately. He'd only been given that report earlier that day. We wouldn't give anybody a copy of the report before the day. And he made the double apology. And then what came out of that was a commitment to all that happened afterwards. And what we have to remember in terms of the most recent events and what I would call the, fail, the failed prosecutions is that there has never in history been a more expensive criminal investigation into anything. There has never been a more, um, a more expensive IOPC, Independence of Police Conduct, Office of Police Conduct. There hasn't been a more, in, a more expensive um, investigation by them either. And there has never been a more, in, a more expensive inquest in other, you know, that was the most, ex and still remains the most expensive inquest ever. All those resources, all those resources were committed to achieving in the public domain what Richie and everybody else who were survivors knew to be the truth. And whether or not you win with prosecutions, the one thing that is really important is that the panel listened, went through the material, 153 findings, blew all the myths out of the water and exonerated the fans. That wasn't done politically, that was done on the facts. Equally, the inquest picked that up and I was on secondment to the Hillsborough legal teams throughout the inquests. And I wrote 30 papers on the different parts of the inquest procedure for the legal teams. And when we got to the end of the inquest, it took two months for that verdict to be delivered. Because when you think about it, he did a narrative verdict, but he had to have agreement that those, that verdict sat with all of the lawyers. They had to see it beforehand and they tried to modify it and change it and so on. So although the verdict amounts to a series of questions being answered, on the day, the reality of the verdict is what we call a narrative that he read out in court that took hours, but that had taken two months to construct. And we'd been through that with a fine tooth comb. When I went to the inquest, I left Belfast and I had on the end of our big kitchen table, all of the submissions from all of the different interested parties to the inquest. And I had the uh, verdict that he was about to deliver. And I said to my partner, Dina, as we left, I'll leave them there because I'm going to have to need them for the next stage, which I thought would be an appeal. And I was gobsmacked when that verdict was delivered in the way it was. I mean, we knew what the truth was. We knew what the narrative was. But we didn't, we weren't convinced that the jury were going to find 
the verdict that they did. And what it was, was, as you know, only too well, it was a complete exoneration of all of the fans. It was the holding to account of 25 interested parties, mostly the police, 25 in points are holding the interested parties to account, mainly the police. But also that verdict carried with it unlawfully killed. In other words, everyone who died had been killed unlawfully. A lot of people ask me now, how is it that you can have a verdict of unlawfully killed, but you don't win a case on manslaughter? And the answer to that is very simple. You can achieve an unlawfully killed verdict because you're not specifying specifically who committed an act. It was a collective act of negligence on multiple parts. But once you try to take one of those and try to prove guilt, that is really difficult. So the, from the moment the prosecution started, I was wary. First of all, I was wary. On the day the prosecution was announced at Duckenfield, I knew that 23 other people who were whose names had been put forward to the DPP for prosecution had already been dropped. And subsequently, we saw the prosecution of Norman Bettison dropped. So I had no, I had no faith in, that, in what followed. And my concern was, and I think I've been proved right, was that this massive, impressive victory for justice that had been achieved through the panel and being achieved through the inquest verdict suddenly became tarnished because of the long wait that we went through for the uh, prosecutions and then for the failure of the prosecutions. Because to see families and survivors say, we've lost, really hit home to me last week because I know they didn't lose. I know that the families and survivors, like no other situation before, the families and survivors won. The justice that they had delivered was the justice that was there in the 153 findings of the panel's report, and it was there in the verdict of the inquest. Just to get new inquest was an achievement, but to get that verdict, was phenomenal and that was a victory because you couldn't actually say it was this police officer or that police officer that had unlawfully killed that didn't matter it was a collective unlawful killing by a collective primarily by those in the in, in the south yorkshire police and that is without any doubt an immense an immense victory when you think that that was done on the bereaved and survivors having to come back time and again and to fight just to get even a hearing. There's just one other point I want to go back to, which really struck a chord when, when Richie was talking. He said when he was involved right in the early days and when you went, Richie, um, 
to the first inquest. And I remember those first inquests so well. And you went to that first inquest and you realized afterwards that the statement you'd given was not the statement that was being put forward. That's really important because what we focused on has been the reviewed and altered statements of police officers and ambulance officers. But we've never focused on the reviewed and altered statements of survivors. And that is a really significant and important point. And I witnessed it happening in Warrington to myself. When I got the state, they for some reason wanted to take a statement from me in Warrington. Um, and that was during the second inquest. It was relatively recently. And when the statement came back to me, I could see there were sentences that bore no relation to the words I would use. And I had to go through it and rewrite it. But imagine, you know, imagine a situation like you're in where you've suffered so much when you've nearly died, when people around you have died and you're absolutely up against it. And the statement that you have given is not the statement that is there in court. That is an outrage. And that, that is, you know, so we only think of the review and alteration of statements in one dimension, i.e. the police. And that is serious. Of course it is. But when you think that every single fan statement, every single survivor's statement went through a review and alteration process, you know, that it, it, it demonstrates the extent of what happened in the immediate aftermath in terms of the investigation. I think, sorry, 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 I was just going to, just picking up on, just picking up on something Phil said there uh, and the ambulance statements. Yes. Uh, and the referee's statement, even the even the referee had his statement amended. Right. He, he described seeing fans arrive at the ground, and he said they were mixed, meaning they were male, they were female, they were young, they were old, and they changed it to the fans were pissed. That's the referee, you know. So the the depths they went to are just absolutely incredible. I mean, this on that, on that here in the house. I have not just changed statements from the police. Obviously, I discovered that in the early days. But when I was on the panel, what I discovered was duplicate statements. Yeah. So you had a serial officer, senior serial officer. I'd read his statement. Then I'd read one of his, one of his serial statements. And it was never 100%, but the highest was 85% of the statement was identical. And people have said to me since, well, how can you be sure that that wasn't just a coincidence? They had a conversation. I said, I'll tell you how. I'm an academic. I mark essays all the time. Yeah. And if you want to know what plagiarism looks like, it was when they make the same spelling mistake. And I said, so when I'm reading through this and I see where spelled W-H-E-R, when it should be W-E-R-E. And I see W-H-E-R-E, and it should be W-E-R-E. And that mistake or that error is repeated in three statements by three different people or another similar word, you know, there and there. That's the giveaway. And, and so although the words were identical, the spelling mistakes were identical, so they were reviewed and altered to that extent. 
And so when it, it so you had two two situations. You had the review and alteration of statements. You had a team that was going through methodically altering statements. Little yellow um, stickets like that up on the top corner saying, not a good statement for the South Yorkshire Police. See officer asked him to change this paragraph, that paragraph, another paragraph. But now what I discovered was that the police statements were also duplicated, you know, in, in specific serials. In other words, something we've all known for years, getting the story straight. And that yeah. chimed with one of the police officers that I'd interviewed, who was the one that I took to Stuart Smith. And he stated to me immediately afterwards, our serial boss got us together in a pub. And that was the phrase he used. We've got to get our record straight. Yeah. It's quite shocking. I mean, the tale of tape, just for obviously people, who I, I sit there and think, you know, people who may not understand this, the tale of tape from 2016 almost reads like a bad serialization of a program. You know, like where a drama series just gets dragged out and it's dragged out badly, you know, like a bad ending almost. A year on the CPS, and it's a year on after the inquest, the CPS announced the six people that were going to be charged right there. Duckenfield, um, Mackerel, um, the three that went on trial, which is Metcalf, Denton, and Alan Foster, and then obviously Sir Norman Betterson. Why is a sir? I will never understand. But okay. 2018, so another year goes by. June 2018, another year goes by. The judge lifts the historic stay of the further prosecution on Duckenfield. You know, the fact that there was one, do, you know, a podcast within itself as well. Um, so new proceedings can go ahead. Another year after that, August 2018. Now, the reason I remember this one is I'd started a new job. I'd got back from Kiev and I started a new job. And my boss was a guy called Dave Morris from Liverpool. So for the bank that I worked for at the time, he was a boss. And it was on that day that he actually told me that he was a survivor. So he knew I was a big Liverpool fan. He knew that I was um, massive into going to games and everything else. And, and he would say, oh, I'll go every now and again, you know, a few matches here or there. You know, don't get to as many as I used to. Oh, okay. I thought nothing of it. Then he said, you know, I was a survivor from Leppings Lane. Um, sorry, from the disaster. And, you know, sometimes my heart's not there or, you know, I don't, I don't want to go. I'm like, okay. Um, and when the news came out, he, he was defeated. I just remember the look on his face of anger and upset and dismay completely. And his response in text to me was, nothing's going to happen. They're not going to do anything for anybody. This is going to be a sham. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. You know, there's these magical people that I know who Jim knows as well, who work in the background. They're doing amazing stuff, giving lots of stuff to the CPS. And then that just carried on, like, you know, like 2018. Yeah. Um, was it open source? rejects the defence application to ban reporting on the Hillsborough trial. The fact that the defence don't want people to report on a trial just says, speaks volumes, right, in regards to them thinking of what could come out here. Um, and also the other one was it um, uh, preventing tweeting from court so that people couldn't actually tell what was going on court. Yeah, after that, 2019, Duckenfeld and Macro go on tile. Um, April 2019, so April 2019, 30 years on, the jury fails to reach a verdict against Duckenfield, convicts Mackerel of health and safety offence, and they give him an absolutely king bollocks offence fine of six and a half grand. Six and a half grand for a health and safety offence. It's only 96 people, right? When you, when you look at that six and a half thousand pound fine, only 96 people. That, that was the thing that crushed me at that point in time. 
And my boss turned at the time, turned around and goes, this is a fucking disgrace. Didn't mince his words, he said, it's a fucking disgrace. I was like, I couldn't disagree with more. You then move fast forward to October and November, you know, October and November, 2019, Duck and Fields retrial starts at um, Preston Crown Court. But then a month later, the jurors acquit him of gross negligence manslaughter. This is a person who couldn't remember certain things on the day. And during the, I've got the quote unquote from last time round, you know, and forgive me for, for bringing this up, but if I remember correctly, didn't he falter and pause during um, the original in 2016, during the coroner's inquest, when he was giving submissions? It was it around 2015 or so, where he was being spoken to and the things that he said, and he just couldn't speak out properly? Yeah, this is Duckenfield, and I'm, I, I won't stop the pod to go and get it. I'll find the quote and I'll come back to yourselves upon it. But that just carried on and on, right? Then you get into this year, 2020 and 2021. And in early May 2021, the jurors hear how PC's account of the disaster was changed to remove criticism of the police. But notes about drunk fans were kept in, so completely in regards to what you guys were saying. And then late May 2021, only a few weeks ago, the trial collapses. And, and the trial collapses on the basis of what had been submitted by um, the defence. And Mr. Justice William Davis, the justice rules that the offence could not have been committed because the amendments to prepare, the amendments were to prepare police statements for the public inquiry. That was a non-statutory inquiry, which Davis described to a jury as an administrative exercise, not a course of public justice. I'll repeat that for people, not a course of public justice, an administrative exercise. The death of 96 people and the subsequent inquest into it was just an admin exercise. You know, the lay person like me sat there and goes, so you're saying that that's just a tick box exercise is what you're calling it. All of this emotion, all of this hurt, all of this pain, and you wish you wash it away like that, administrative exercise. And it's so shocking when you hear it like that. So, well, so shocking. Melinda, um, I mean, it's my view that for the first 20 years, from 89 to 09, it was in the establishment's hands and we got blocked at every turn. What changed on that 20th anniversary was we managed to wrestle it out of the establishment's hands um, and we, we, were, we were running downhill with it then for a few years. Um, the HIP panel quashed the original unsafe verdicts of accidental death. We got the new inquests. Uh, although I would say that the establishment was still trying to influence them, we eventually got the fourteen nil verdict that we that you know that we wanted. Um, and then after that, it was passed back into the establishment's hands, and everything that's happened since then has been a disaster. Um, so, you know, it says everything, doesn't it? I mean, what's, what stunned me even more is you obviously got Sue Henning from the CPS and what she said, you know, that, you know, 96 people, so it's quite a properly, she said that this is a, a publicly funded authority can lawfully withhold information, say that again, can lawfully withhold information from public inquiry charged with finding out why 96 people died at a football match in order to ensure that it never happened again 
all that a solicitor can advise that such a withholding without any sanction of any sort may be a matter which should be subject to scrutiny. You know, when you look at all the verbiage and all the things that are used in that, the things that spring out really quickly are that a publicly funded authority can withhold information lawfully from a public inquiry, which means every public inquiry that should happen now or has happened historically is just shit because they could have lied in it and it's okay. No, it depends. It depends on what form of an inquiry it is. If it's a statutory inquiry and people come to that inquiry and they give evidence, they give evidence in the same way as they give evidence in a, in a court. If it's a non-statutory inquiry, which is what Hillsborough was, everybody thinks it's a full public inquiry, but it's a non-statutory inquiry. So evidence in chief isn't taken in the same way. And the withholding of evidence by those in power, especially because it might implicate them in a criminal trial, is not an offence. What it took to new, what, what this verdict has taken to new levels is the fact that all the information that was gathered was gathered for a, the purpose of a non-statutory inquiry. And therefore, it could not be submitted as reliable evidence in, a, in a, an inquiry. If, if it had been statutory, it would have been. Because it was a non-statutory inquiry, it could not be submitted in evidence in court. My concern is that this has been known for five years. My concern is that if that is the case, and it is, if that is the case, and that's why there is now a move towards a duty of candor in all inquiries. I'll come back to that in a minute. But if that is the case, it was known four to five years ago. So why on earth did they put everybody, the families, the survivors, through this trial? And I have to say, the people who were accused through this trial, knowing that the evidence that would be being produced, which it was, would not meet the standard of proof that was necessary and that the judge would halt it mid midstream after the prosecution's case had been put. That is the real scandal because what it stopped is for all those years that have, have gone since, um, since we had the uh, inquest, or certainly since the Duckenfield trial. Since that time, no one has been able to publish anything. No one's been able to have these podcasts, nothing like that, because people have been hidebound by the court, a court and a charge which should never have been brought on its own terms. And what's even worse is to see families and survivors traipsing up to Preston or going to the liver buildings um, with the expectation that this course, this court, this court will run its course, it also then opened the door for the uh, barristers who were representing uh, at least two of the three to come out and be offensive and to revitalise all of the myths of Hillsborough that had gone before, because they were triumphalist. They came out and they turned what has been an immense achievement, an immense victory with the panel and with the inquest verdicts into a defeat. 
And let's be honest about what this was about. This wasn't a trial about culpability on the day. The only person who's ever been tried for that is Duckenfield. This was a trial about the aftermath and the review and alteration of statements. So we're still back, you know, in terms of what justice actually delivers. You know, it's never delivered because there was a complete reluctance to charge those who are still alive with their role in Hillsborough other than Duckenfield. And in, in, one, in one sense, had Duckenfield been found guilty, would that have been just? Well, maybe in terms of his own failures, but what about all the other failures? What about all the other senior officers who are still alive? You know, and I saw, so I think that there's, you know, there are real complex issues here, but the bottom line is that people were led up the garden path. And I don't care what the, um, you know, what the CPS say, they should have known this. They should have understood it. They know that there's no duty of candor. They've known that for years. That's why the Hillsborough law has been, um, has been initiated. The idea of having a Hillsborough law where in all these instances, there will be a duty of candor on those in authority and those in public office to come to the court, whatever the court is, and tell the truth. That doesn't exist. And so we're left in this ridiculous situation where you can lie and cheat in terms of your statements, that they are then given to a public inquiry, which everybody assumes to be a statutory inquiry, which it wasn't, and then with a high court judge, he makes, a he, he makes his deliberation on that inquiry and eventually the inquests using the same methodology, the new inquests find a verdict of unlawfully killed. But when we get to a court of law, those, those statements are not transferable into that court of law. So... You know, what concerns me is, yes, that is a terrible gap that needs to be filled, and I understand that. That's what the Hillsborough law is all about. But what really concerns me is that this was known. And so everybody has been put through this. Richie has been put through this along with all the other survivors, along with the bereaved, for five more years when it was inevitably going to fail. That is absolutely outrageous. Completely. It is. Uh, I mean, Jim, I just want to come to you for a bit because I realise that, you know, we haven't spoken to you for a while in this. Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? I mean, look, listen to all the trial collapse, the sentiments, the truths. Where do we go from here? In your question. Opinion? It's a good question. Um, well, one thing... Um, one thing has become clear, I mean, a few of us have had a conversation about it recently, is, um, and I don't think people actually have, have realised this, but the, um, the, the, the findings of the Hillsborough Independent Panel and the, the report is supposed to be a matter of public access. It's locked, still locked. The cases have collapsed. Where is the information? Give it back to us. It's not yours. It's ours. We own it. Give it back to us. It belongs to the public. So there's one thing that needs to happen. 
Second thing I think that needs to happen is that the untold story around the cover-up of the cover-up of the cover-up, as Margaret Aspinall so eloquently put it, should be told. There should be a permanent resource for people to go and educate themselves about it. We could do two versions of it. We can do one for schools. We can do one for grown-ups. Whatever. It, it, there, there's still elements of this story that are, it remain untold. And there are elements of the story that we uncovered over the last five years but couldn't say anything. I'm not going to say anything in this one. I want to keep my powder dry. Oh, no, fire away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> another, another idea that's been... There's suggested. a lot of lawyers in the family. <laughs> not lawyers, I say lawyers. Um, I'll find someone for you. If you want to fire away, I mean, let's... let's, let's you know, I don't know how else to say this, but you know what? Why the fuck are we staying quiet? We've been quiet, for, we've been silenced for five or so many years a, by a machine that just seems to want to need, there's no other word for it, it's almost like as if it can't breathe without a narrative of lies. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a good point, and I have an answer for it. The reason why we're not shouting from the rooftops what we know is because it needs to be put in, in a compelling format, yeah. and exactly. that takes time. You can lie through your arsehole within minutes of a disaster. And for the next four days, you can peddle lie after lie after lie, but the truth needs time to be put in such a way that it will be believed. And resurrecting the idea of a permanent archive that contains the truth and all of the truth and the untold yet untold truth takes time. And in in order to do that effectively, it needs and I'm going to use a word that I hoped I wouldn't have to use today. Dignity. I was angry. I, was, I, I can't remember the last time I was this livid when the case has collapsed. And I, 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 I had a bit of a rant on Rourke about it and um, wrote a pretty nasty libelous poem. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I was reminded by somebody here tonight that um, reminded me of why I got into this. And that was because people need to hear a version that's palatable. As, as, as horrible as that sounds, they need a version of the truth that they can believe. And me shouting it from the roof, or anyone else shouting it from the rooftops, frothing at the mouth, just because ours oh, is them scousers whining again. No, it, need, it needs to be done in a very um, dignified, <laughs> constructive, structured permanent way so not just a permanent archive not just a website but also maybe an exhibition i mean a, a permanent a, a per, uh, sorry Phil, no, yeah. i was just going to say that is a, I was, I'm sorry to interrupt i was just going to say that's a really important point because you only have to get it wrong once mm-hmm. and you're silenced forever mm. and you know obviously with all of the material i have in my own hillsborough archive we have a whole room at Queen's dedicated to it, which I'll hand over once once a permanent archive is established. But there are issues, you know, and this is a really important point, Harinda, there are issues there that I know to be the truth, but I can't actually disclose them because I only have one point of contact for that truth. And I can't risk all the other material that we're working on to be brought down by that one error that I make 
that I can't stand over. And I think that's one of the reasons why, yeah, it's important that people feel free to sound off if they want to sound off. But those of us who are working on it and developing it, it has to be cast iron every time. And so I've got over 20 issues that never got resolved on the panel where I was looking for material, where in those issues, I had a very clear indication of what was happening. But because I couldn't absolutely prove it, I couldn't write them because if we wrote them into the report and then we couldn't stand over them, the whole report would have collapsed. So I'd have sacrificed all that we had on one truth that I couldn't actually stand over. And I think that's when, you know, the, that's where the conversation now has to go is to how we can ensure that everything that is done is fully reliable, that we're not shouting from the rooftops, but we are shouting from the rooftops. You know, there's nothing in there's 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 nothing in the the book that went into schools that Jim produced that 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 in any way is wrong. That makes it very powerful. But if you make one mistake, then you're in real trouble. I hear you. I hear you. That's great. I really do. Um, because I said the parallels that I have on this are from my own history. Uh, and I know so many times how they've got it wrong. Yeah. yeah. Richie, I just wanted to ask you something, because something that seems to come out again and again and again is this word truth. So why do we think so many feared and still fear the truth? As a survivor, you, uh, uh, my own experience of disaster and trauma is 9-11. So some people know my story from 9-11 and surviving and, and, and what happened to me. Um, and it took many years to be able to even think about 9-11. I still can't watch visuals of it. I don't watch any films, programs, or documentaries about it. Anytime that it comes on, I switch the TV off, I go somewhere else. Um, and 20 years is coming up in September, and who knows. But there was a truth, you know, I could see it. Something happened. That was what happened. There wasn't anything else. That's exactly what happened. And people have conspiracy theories that are quite loony from certain points of it and other parts of which you didn't think this should be compelling just because you've written it in a really, really nice way and try to look all educated, but it's still fucking bollocks in my head. But you're, you're somebody who's seen a disaster which has been covered up. It has been collided about. Yeah, so the question I, I ask you is why do we think so many feared and still fear the truth? I suppose the police that were involved were married people. That they had mortgages. They feared the truth. It would it would cost them their livelihoods. The government, I suppose, feared the truth because the match was staged in a you know in a in a, a stadium without a safety certificate. Everyone had individual reasons for for wanting it, and and we always said that we were an easy target. There was there was stereotypes about Liverpool in the eighties that made it easy for people to believe the lies about us. You know, we'd had we'd had the massive mass unemployment, we'd had the Taxford riots, we'd we'd had Hillsborough, uh, sorry, Heysel. And by the time nineteen eighty nine come, people were people were ready to believe anything about us. But what's what's been really difficult for survivors? I mean, I, I give evidence in Warrington and said that for 23 years of my life I've been branded as a drunken ticketless murderer because of the lies. And it wasn't until 
you know, the HIP panel, which I'll be eternally grateful to Phil for, uh, until that came out. And I think I can speak on behalf of all survivors. When that came out, that was the biggest weight off our shoulders you've ever seen, you know, you've ever known in your life. I remember the, the civic reception that, 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 you know, that, that night uh, that Phil spoke about earlier. And I went with a group of lads and I only lasted about 20 minutes there. And I thought, I, I, was, happy, I was happy, but I, I just couldn't listen to any more. And I, I said to the lads, listen, I'm all right. I'll just get off on my own. And I just went and stood down the road and had a pint. And the weight that come off my shoulders that day, I can't even tell you. You know, to, to walk around for 23 years being blamed for causing the deaths of your fellow Liverpool supporters. Those lies are uh, well unspeakable, isn't it? And then, and then, and, and then after that, to go on to to Warrington and get that fourteen nil verdict, um, and for the police to turn up again and lie, lie again, and day every day, I I went about three times a week, and um, I, I sat there watching the South Yorkshire police witnesses come on the stand day after day after day and regurgitate the same filth. And we had to sit there and look at them and listen to that. And, and all the time you're thinking, I hope to God the jury can see through this because there was no physical evidence of, of any wrongdoing by Liverpool supporters. You know, when you looked at the all the videotape evidence they had, when you looked at um, the, the thousands of photographs the legal teams could look at, there was no evidence whatsoever. It was just verbal evidence from the police officers. And when the jury saw through that, that what, a, what a day that was and, and what a night. And, and thank you to you, Harinder, who put a few quid behind the bar and um, the gently. <laughs> we, we, uh, yeah, we had a good night in the shankly and the, uh, the mitre, the ship and mitre. Uh, <laughs> we we yeah. got thrown out of the ship and mitre in the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you have to go um, back because you couldn't finish it? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You put that much money behind the bar, we couldn't drink it all. That was Aaron Farley. That was. Uh, I've, I've, that was I've never I've never had so much Canadian red in my life. <laughs> well, as somebody who doesn't drink, um, it, it was the least I could do. And you know, I wouldn't buy anybody a drink normally, but. I think in, in what you've gone through and what you guys have experienced. And also, you know what? The, the amount of emotional stress day in, day out during those inquests, nobody can think of what it's like. I've not had to go through that, right? I mean, um, it's, you know, I, I think we're all in awe of yourselves. Survivors, family members, um, people who can go through that day in, day out. Yes, Jim, sorry. Some, I want, to, I want to share two things as a witness um, to the um, events of like 2012 and 2016. Um, in 2012, I blagged my way into the press conference with um, Adrian Tempany and sat next to him and David Conn. And just before all the press conferences started, I saw, I had not met Phil at this point. Phil walked right past me in St. Mary's Chapel in the Anglican Cathedral shaking like a leaf, ashen white. And I saw the emotion in him. A few minutes later, after we came out of the press conferences, 
There's a brilliant photograph, and I treasure it to this day, of me, Damien Cavana, and Adrian Tempany, all with our arms around each other. And you talk about feeling the weight lifting off people's shoulders. I saw the weight come off those two fellas' shoulders. Mm. And it was the first time I'd ever seen Damien smile. And it was the first time I'd seen Adrian look relaxed. Because we, we, we'd, we'd met several times, we'd talked several times over the years. Adrian helped yep. us with HFD. Then the most powerful one, go on, Richie, uh, Richie, you really want to say something, go. No, you, you reminded me, when you spoke about Damien then, you reminded me of when I first met Damien and it was really, really powerful. Um, mm. I got introduced to him in the Stanley after a game um, and the lad that introduced us, Mike Nicholson, said, you two will get on like a house on fire because you're similar characters. And we did, we hit it off immediately. But what, what he said to me in that pub, I went home and just broke down completely. Um, he said that, there are those of us that were there who obviously never came home. There are those of us who've moved to the other side of the world to get away from it. There's those of us who've died since who couldn't cope with things. There's those of us who've died of natural... So the number of people that were in them central pens dwindles and dwindles over the years. And he basically said, it's up to us to speak out for the ones that can't or haven't made it. And I thought, Christ, I can't do this. I can't speak in public. And I, I, I went home that night and I said to my wife, I, was, I, just, I broke down and, and I said to her, I can't do this. And, and, um, and I said, I can see the pain in his eyes when I look at him, you know, the burning injustice. And she mm-hmm. said, that pain's in your eyes, but you can't see it. Yeah. And then from the moment she said that to me, anytime I spoke to somebody that was in those central pens after that, I could tell if I could tell people who were in them pens because you could see it in their eyes. And and after the HIP panel and after the inquest, I don't you, I don't think you can see that in people's eyes now. So you know we, we we have won whatever whichever way they've twisted it in the end. We we've won. Yeah. Remember I used the word dignity earlier. Let's go back to, let's go back to 2016 in the court. Phil was in the main court in Warrington and we were in the annex, yeah? Yeah, there's like uh, there's a few people like me, you, uh, Nick Braley, uh, Adrian, uh, a few few others like uh, Chris Lamb was there as well, and I I remember that the palpable sense of tension just before the um, yes nos were, were due. I remember this little officious lady <laughs> walking around saying, "Might I remind you, you were in a court and you will remain dignified." And we were like, "What the hell? We're going to celebrate our and." <laughs> When unlawful killing was announced, I remember seeing and feeling the reaction from you all behind me in the, in the row behind me. And it was palpable. It was, abs- it was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. And then all of a sudden you all shut up. You were like, wait, question seven. And then when question seven exonerated you, that was like the most incredible sense of relief I have ever seen or felt or heard of any group of people anywhere in my life ever. It was an incredible moment, and it's a privilege to be there with you, Richie. And Dina was there with you as well. She was in the same... Oh, Dina was there, yeah? Yeah. It was incredible, and and I remember that court official coming round, because when when they said, you've got to act, stay dignified when they're reading the um, verdicts out, and... um, it was, I think it was Damien, he, he muttered, we've been dignified for 20, 20 years. years. Yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. And what's the first thing, what's the first thing Richie Greaves did when all the, um, when all the um, 
things have been announced and we went outside. What's the first thing Richie did outside the door? Got his flag out. <laughs> yeah. Told you they lied. Maybe that's because the walk one was looking lonely. <laughs> My personal story of that moment was that I was sitting in the midst of Margaret's family. I had a son on one side and a partner on the other. And when they got to question seven, I broke down. And I had my head between my knees and I was sobbing. And I thought, how appalling this is. Here's a guy who wasn't at Hillsborough, who isn't a survivor, who hasn't been bereaved. And here are two people who've been bereaved comforting me. And I just thought the irony of that, you know, but it was uncontrollable because you realize that all that you had, you know, all of you as survivors and bereaved families had gone through in that one moment, history was made. You know, history's rewritten. Yeah. And, you know, you could have all of that in the panelist report. We knew that. But to have it acknowledged in a court of law yeah. by a jury of your peers who'd heard evidence for two years, you know, that was just overwhelming to me. And I, I kind of, it was, it was just, it was just remarkable. Um, because although I'd seen the coroner summing up, he'd been very careful in his days of summing up. And obviously we'd seen it at all the stages and modified it and challenged him on it. There were still no guarantees at all that a jury would see his direction and hold on to it. I mean, he, he gave his opinion for days and days, weeks to that jury. And they're sitting there with all this responsibility of having to take this in and then answer these questions. And it was just a remarkable moment. I don't think, I, I don't think there's been anything like it uh, before or since, you know? I think it's, you know, with all the backstory to it, with all the history of it, with knowing, you know, knowing the, what was at stake, you know, the literally, as we know, with all those who've died since, lives were at stake. Yeah. And I think that that... Literally, yeah. It was. It was a, it was a really significant and unbelievable, in a way, moment that's changed history. And, that, and that's the one thing I would... If I, if I was to sum up now what, what is the legacy, the legacy is, it, and it, it doesn't bring anybody back, it doesn't take away your suffering, Richie, or, or the suffering of the other survivors, or the suffering of the bereaved. But the legacy is that it will change the process for all time. Yeah. And that, that's so important. And that's why the Hillsborough Law is really significant. A duty of candor will change everything for all time. Cool. I think, I think that leads us nicely to summation to go around. So, Phil, thank you. Jim, over um, to you. Thank you. Uh, Phil, you're absolutely correct. And um, uh, um, I, I see that uh, uh, Theresa May today put a question to uh, 
I can't even say his name. I don't even want to say his name, but he just gave some mealy-mouthed response. So Herinda, when you asked the blonde twonk, the blonde twonk, yeah. Can I can I say cockwomble? Of course you can. Uh, cockwomble. There you go. Um, and he gave some mealy-mouthed response about considering this and considering that. Well, you know, consider the <laughs> the, the true legacy of, of uh, is the fact that the truth won. And what we get out of that should change history, yes. Should we write history, yes. Because I said this last week, that the, the, the old saying is, those who win the wars write the story. Well, we've written the story more than once, and we'll keep writing it, because we won. That's it, simple as that. You want a summation. We won, you lost. When I say you, I mean... Yeah. South Yorkshire Police, they basically admit that they paid out. They've done the liability thing. Damien Cavanagh had a brilliant tweet about it. The truth, 2012. Yeah. Unlawfully killed, 2016. The confession, 2021. He put that out like yesterday or the day before. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we won and we will tell the world how we won. And we will also tell the world what they, the, the police, Try to hide. Richie, from yourself. Be, Sorry, Jim. It'll be a matter of permanent public record forever. Indeed. Richie, from yourself, in summation. Um, I think we spoke before and said, you know, why aren't we shouting from the rooftops? Um, and for probably the last decade, the reason we haven't spoke, uh, shouted from the rooftops is because we've been silenced. Um, and What's worth saying is that survivors and family members have acted with enormous dignity and we've respected the legal process, even though we knew it would never take us anywhere. And, you know, I, I, I absolutely love the city, the people. I'm so proud of everything they've achieved. And I would say to anyone that's down over what's happened in the last you know, the roller coaster the last few months that we've had with or the last couple of years with Duck and Field and with, with, with all these trials collapsing. That, 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 that's hard to take, but, you know, we've been dignified throughout uh, and, we, and, we, and we've, we've got those verdicts and no one will ever win. No, there's, there's, no, there's no winners, is there, with, with 96 people dead? But, mm. you know, I think, I think we've got as far as we could with it and, from now on, I mean, from my point of view now, I think it's all about three things, you know, education, education and education. You know, let's, let's shout from the rooftops now about yeah. what they did and, and, and mm-hmm. educate people and tell them what the real truth is. Yep. From myself, I, I did find the Duckenfield quote, uh, sorry, the, the, the tete-a-tete with Mr. Mansfield from way back when, but I'm not going to say it. And the reason I'm not going to say it is because of everything that's just gone in the last five, 10 minutes and the uplifting spirit that you guys have left this podcast with, which is ultimately the shining light that's come out of Liverpool. So as I said, I'm an outsider. I will always say this. I know sometimes, Jim, you say something other stuff, but I'm an outsider. Yeah, I wasn't born in Liverpool, wasn't bred in Liverpool. If I had a place to go and live in the world, I probably would end up living in Liverpool, but work and life and commitments mean I'm down south over here. Um, but one day it will probably happen. I'll make it happen, I think. But what Liverpool has shown me as a city is this incredible, I suppose energy is right the word here, yeah? 
this incredible energy of no matter what people throw at you, yeah, you have the ability of, of taking it on the chin and going, fuck off, quite literally, and then coming right back at it with verve and vigor to show somebody, but that's not really what we're about. Be that from the football team to the city itself and the people within the city. And then people who come out of that city that I interact with or I get to speak with or I get to see. And we mentioned our dear friend, Adrian Tempany, who was there at um, the first set of podcasts. And when we asked him for this one, he, he respectfully declined and he had his reasons and they hurt at the time. They really hurt at the time. But listening to yourselves, one thing I will share with yourself is this. Do you remember, Jim, when Red and White Cop would have a few meetups and we yep. met, Adrian was late, down in one, two, no, two and a half, three, 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 four. Uh, he couldn't finish a pint, that was it, yeah. That was the one. Um, the one thing that stuck with me was that there was a period where he spoke about not wanting to do anything or go anywhere near a football match. Nothing near it. Didn't want to touch. The, the thought of football was loathed him. My heart went through the roof and through a stadium on a certain day in June in Madrid in 2019 because I'm standing next to people who look, a few other guys that look like me because um, we all went to the match together at the final. Um, and about five to ten minutes before kickoff, I looked to my right and it's Adrian. Yeah. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was, you know, like when you're like, you're the last person I expected to see. I mean, I'm so glad you're here. But hey, you know, I, you're the last person I expected to see at a football match, let alone a final, let alone sitting next to me. Yeah, and the happiness that I had because everything he'd ever said to me about a match just went out the window. Because I sat there thought, you know what? He's here. He's here. I know what this what what this means to him to just be there, and that was everything for me. Yeah, and it, it will always be that way. And I, as I said, daily miss today. But Adrian, you know, you got a lot of love. Yeah, that night, that night in Madrid, um, when you would, uh, after the game, Adrian um, slept on a bench outside our apartment. Um, he was meant, he was meant to be in the apartment, but we we were fast asleep and couldn't hear him knocking on the door. So he spent the night in the street. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds sounds like Rafa Benitez in uh, Istanbul. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if he's listening, soz about that. <laughs> You're not really. Alas, <laughs> there's only one thing I'll I'll say to correct what you've just said. We don't have outsiders in Liverpool. Correct. Thank you. That means a lot, especially from yourselves. Um, well, you know how we do it. You know how we do it. I do. Well, yes, I do. <laughs> We climb the hill in our own way here and you're with us. Well, there are um, some exceptions, you know. The current Prime Minister, for example. Yeah, I don't think he's going to go inside anyway. I hope that he'll go inside a prison one day, but I don't know. I'm not counting my um, time <laughs> on that. Hopefully somebody tries to put him in prison. That'd be really fun, I think. Um, leaving Twonk aside, last time we had closing remarks from yourself, Phil, um, and they were rather poignant in respect to you know, people being remembered. Um, I offer the opportunity again to yourself to close this out in whichever which way you see fit. Um, it's a respect thing as well, because you're our elder elder of everybody here. <laughs> Only just, Jim's close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel 
people obviously can't see this. This works for makes for bad radio. I'm the only one on here without glasses. Um, but I think they're probably going to come soon enough anyway. <laughs> so Richard takes his off. So Phil, to close out, over to yourself. Well, I, I wasn't really prepared, but I think that I'll start with very briefly. I'll be very brief, but what I'll start with was that I've met so many wonderful people as a consequence of Hillsborough. And I wished I'd never met them because meeting them in the circumstances means that they're either bereaved or they are survivors of one of the most significant and appalling uh, disasters or tragedies in contemporary history. I live in Northern Ireland and the moment and obviously where you're living in a place that was a war zone for so many years and where so many families still are fighting for justice. We just a few weeks ago had the Ballymurphy inquests after 40 years and all of those who died, the 10 who died, were exonerated in those, in those inquests. They were shot dead by the British Army, although there was no unlawful killing verdict. So living here, you kind of really understand and grasp what happens when people live in a war zone. But Hillsborough wasn't a war zone. Hillsborough was a beautiful spring day when two sets of fans set off to watch their football teams in a repeat of the previous year's semi-final with all the hope and aspiration that in a few weeks' time, their team would be at Wembley. And in Liverpool fans' eyes, that their team would also win the championship, as it was then called. And they found themselves literally in a war zone that wasn't a war. The war came later. It was a war of words. It was a war of discounting their truth. It was a war of vilification, of blame, of suffering. And it had that impact, I would think, that is consistent with what happens in the aftermath of war. The post-traumatic stress that came as a consequence of Hillsborough was not only the consequence of survival, it was also the consequence of not being believed, of being vilified, of being told that they were drunk and ticketless and so on. And that, to me, took it to that level of damage and hurt and pain that has lasted forever. And I honestly do not know where the bereaved families and where the survivors, and now let's remember who we're talking about. We're talking about bereaved families and survivors' families whose adult children weren't even born then, all of whom have been affected and hurt. Hundreds upon hundreds have been hurt, thousands perhaps, by what happened on that day. 
But what they've really been hurt by is the fact that the society in which they live, which is sold to us as a democratic society, the society in which they live, the state and successive governments, both Conservative and Labour, let them down. And of course, there have been a few beacons like Steve Rotherham and like Andy Burnham, who've carried the torch. But the governments let them down. Jack Straw let them down. Tony Blair let them down. And obviously, from Thatcher right the way through to Johnson and his vilification of Liverpool all those years ago, let them down. But I don't know where the survivors and the bereaved have got their strength from. But what I do know is I'm humbled by it. And what I also know is that I've learned so much from it. And in terms of my own part, if I could give back just a fraction to those wonderful people, and one of them sitting with us here now, Richie, if I could give something back, then whatever it was, I would do. And I just hope that in embarking on what we did all those years ago, in those few days after Hillsborough, when we went to Liverpool City Council and we asked for support for the Hillsborough project right the way through to the present day, I just hope that it's made the contribution we intended. Because in the middle of all of that, I really felt that we'd failed and that I'd personally failed. But I don't feel that now. And I feel that we're in a good time, if you can have a good time out of a disaster, where we will see the emergence of a really strong website. We'll see the emergence of podcasts like this. We'll say, see the emergence of a permanent exhibition to those who died, those who've suffered since. And the most important word, which was used a few seconds ago, that will educate the generations to come and hopefully will educate the population outside Liverpool. Thanks for the opportunity for this evening. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Phil. And actually, thank you to all of you on behalf of not only Anfield Index, but also Liverpool fans, both within the UK and globally. And anyone who listens to this podcast, it, it truly has been an education, an eye-opener, and there is something in here for everybody to take away. Um, and mostly strength and dignity shown by the people who've led the charge forward. So thank you all. Um, I appreciate all those who are listening. It's been a long podcast. I also appreciate the time of the people who've come on, uh, Richie, Jim, and yourself, Professor Phil Scroton. So once again, thank you. I'm also humbled by just having your guys' presence. And again, it won't be too long until we see each other again. Hopefully, Jim, this time you'll tell me that you're coming and you don't need a ticket on match day itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Make sure the flag stays flying, don't worry. But guys, you. once again, thank you very much for your time. Cheers. For the Thank you, Thanks for the opportunity, Helinda. Thank you. Thanks a million. Cheers, Alice. See ya. Sports Social Podcast Network.